Chapter Thirty Four of The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Evading the Point. The hall was nearly filled when Caroline came. She had been beguiled into walking there by the most circuitous route that Kent Monteith and his great familiarity with Chautauqua grounds could plan. "'We shall be late,' she had said to him several times, speaking anxiously, and, with that polite disregard for truth which is a habit with some people, her companion had answered, "'Oh, no, I think not.' So the first of the conference was lost to Caroline. This was a trial." The informal meetings of the CLSC had been to her quite as helpful as any other exercise. "'We shall not lose much if we are late,' Kent Monteith had said. "'It is simply talk that they are having today all about things which people have known for a lifetime.' "'Some people,' she had answered, smiling, in no wise annoyed. She realized her own ignorance as much, possibly more than ever. But since she was learning— Every day it had ceased to be so sad a thing to her. When they entered the hall, the thing which annoyed her was the one that the young man had meant should give her pleasure, the walking down the length of that hall, with many eyes on her, and with some, at least, knowing that she was accompanied by Kent Monteith, the young artist, who, the wise ones said, was destined to be famous. Notoriety of that sort would never be pleasant to Caroline Raynor. It was one of several mistakes which her companion made in his judgment of her character. Only second to this was her annoyance over the undertone conversation in which he persisted, though he must have seen that she wanted to listen. "'I admire Vincent for his patience with this sort of thing,' was one of his comments. "'It is a mark of genius, I suppose, for a scholar to be so good-natured over what must bore him immensely.' Imagine a man's having to stop in the midst of a flow of thought to explain to somebody how to pronounce moustache. "'Yet, if somebody doesn't know, why shouldn't Dr. Vincent tell him?' persisted Caroline. "'This isn't the time for a flow of thought. It is the time to ask questions and have them answered.' "'Why doesn't somebody go to the dictionary and discover for himself if he considers the pronunciation of the word an important question?' It is the triviality of the interruptions with which I am quarrelling. This is a time for important questions and careful answers, in my opinion. Caroline gave her head an emphatic shake. No, she said earnestly. That is what has been the fault of all literary societies everywhere. They confined themselves to what a few of the cultured leaders were pleased to consider important questions, and left out all talk about that which they might have known for years, it is true, but of which some of their less fortunate listeners were in utter ignorance. "'Such as the pronunciation of moustache, for instance,' he said, stroking his own silken one in good-humoured sarcasm. "'Yes, even that. If there is a right and a wrong way to pronounce it, why should I not be taught the right? I insist that you could go to the dictionary and learn, without taking Dr. Vincent's valuable time to tell you. But the trouble is, I should not discover myself in the wrong, unless in some way my attention was called to it. For instance, Mr. Monteith, I notice you say precedence. Now I should never have known that the word should be pronounced precedence, had I not heard a member of the circle refer to it as an error. "'Are you sure?' he asked her, his face flushing a little. 
Yes, she told him, she was quite sure, because his own father had spoken of it one evening, and a discussion had arisen which sent them to their dictionaries to learn that they were wrong and he was right. I stand corrected, he said laughing. It was one of young Monteith's charms that he could laugh gaily over his own defeats, thus stamping the actual unimportance of them. Then, much to Caroline's satisfaction, he gave undivided attention for a few minutes to the talk. Presently he leaned toward her and said, "'There's another argument for you. I have always said luxurious, and I really believe I shall continue to do so. Luxurious is horrid.' "'I don't think I need another argument to convince you,' Caroline said. "'I think you like the whole Chautauqua movement very much.' only you have such a habit of talking at random, of saying things that at most you only half mean, just to see what reply people will make, or for some other reason that I do not understand. I wish you oftener talked just as you thought, or that we were always sure what you thought. Her tone, which had been light at first, grew serious. Something in it touched the listener, apparently more than he wished her to see. Why do you care? He asked the question almost tenderly, and waited with marked eagerness for her answer. "'I care on his account.' There was no mistaking the earnestness in Caroline's voice now. She inclined her head as she spoke toward young Robert Fenton. The boy sat just in front of them, ignorant of their presence, wholly absorbed in the enjoyment of the hour. "'Robert is at the age when he believes in his friends.' There might have been some sarcasm in Caroline's voice now, though her manner did not indicate it. And he is so unfortunate as to believe all you say, possibly more than you say. He draws inferences, perhaps, which you may not intend. It is injuring him, undoing much good that he might, and I believe would otherwise get from Chautauqua. I can't think what your object is. He was disappointed in her reason for caring. He showed it instantly by the manner in which he settled back, with a slight frown on his face, but he spoke lightly enough. The boy is fortunate in having such an interested friend. I half envy him. Then, seeing that she made no sort of answer, after a moment of silence he leaned toward her again. "'You mistake,' he said. "'I do not like the whole Chautauqua movement.' I am as deeply interested in its literary intentions as ever, but there is a prominent element in it that I am entirely out of sympathy with. I presume I may have showed my distaste in talking with your young friend. A pair of very grave eyes were raised to his, and the directness of the question demanded a direct answer. Just what do you mean? Why, I mean... Some way direct questions always embarrassed him. What should I mean? I don't know, said Caroline very quietly. Well, surely you have noticed that every lecture, or at least nearly every lecture, we have had here this season, scientific, philosophical, or otherwise, has partaken very largely of the character of a sermon. I have not discovered it. What is the peculiar characteristic of a sermon? He laughed at this, and complimented her on being skilled in the Socratic method of argument and Caroline, privately resolving that she would take occasion as soon as she could to learn what the Socratic method was, waited for his answer. "'Well now, Miss Raynor, 
you surely know that there has been an alarming amount of religion chinked into the lectures, addresses, and what not this summer. Has it alarmed you? Did you expect irreligion at a Sabbath school assembly? Oh, Sabbath school assembly! That is only a pet name to catch a certain class. Chautauqua is a literary and scientific college. The talent gathered here would do honor to any institution of learning in this country or Europe. Yet, as I say, they have marred the whole by constantly forcing this question upon us. Are literary and scientific people afraid of religion? He could not help smiling at the keenness of the question. Oh, no, he said in utmost good nature. But you see, we consider it irrelevant. Oh, then the talent gathered here that would do credit to this country in Europe is not, after all, capable of judging when it uses irrelevant matter? Whereupon he laughed outright, albeit he was a little annoyed. And Caroline, startled, looked up, relieved to discover that the round table had adjourned, and the talking that was going on was being done informally, by different groups. Come, her companion said, observing this also and rising. I am glad this Boris meeting is over. I beg your pardon. Everything bores me today outside of the actual conversation which I am anxious to carry on with you. Let us take a walk. There are some things that I want to say to you. There are too many people here. There are some things that I want to say to you, Caroline said, trying to smile, and gathering her papers preparatory to carrying out his suggestion. I am glad. Occasionally you make me feel that the last thing you have any desire to do is to bestow the slightest attention on my unworthy self. There was just enough of mock deference in the tone to enable Caroline to take this as trifling, so she answered it with a laugh, although the color of her cheeks deepened. "'I want to talk to you about Robert,' she said. "'Mr. Monteith, I do you the honor to believe that you have no intention of doing him harm, and no idea that you are harming him. But I tell you in all earnestness that you certainly are. You are undermining the faith in which he was reared.' She did him too much honor, and in the light of Dr. Meredith's sermon he realized it, but he answered evasively. What is a faith worth that can be so readily undermined? Not much, it is true. Robert hasn't genuine faith. If he had, I should not fear for him. He has simply his early education, not founded as yet on solid rock." but what use is there in your pushing even the sand on which he stands from beneath his feet? I wish you cared a little for my welfare, Miss Raynor, instead of bestowing your entire interest on Robert. Mr. Monteith, I do care. She spoke the words earnestly, and the color flushed deeply in her cheeks. He entirely mistook the cause. How could he know that she blushed over the thought that she had really given very little time or prayer to this young man? "'Thank you,' he said, and his voice was very gentle. Then, after a moment of silence, "'I don't mean any harm to the boy, Miss Caroline. He is a bright young fellow, and I like to trip him up a little and see him scramble out. Honestly, I don't believe I have injured him. He is too quick-witted.' I am not half so bad a fellow as I appear to be. I am more in earnest about a good many things than you have any idea of. I am sincere in thinking that we have had a little too much mixture of religion here this summer. 
I enjoy purely scientific lectures, without any hint of that which does not strictly belong, and— but anxious as Caroline was to hold him to the subject of Robert until she had secured what she wished, she by no means intended to let him slip away with that bit of sophistry still on his lips, so she interrupted at this point. "'Please tell me, Mr. Monteith, which of the scientific gentlemen here is so poorly prepared for his work that he has introduced into his lecture that which does not strictly belong there? Is Joseph Cook one?' I shall not commit the folly of criticizing Joseph Cook, I assure you, he said, half laughing, half annoyed. I am not of the same caliber as our friend Jack Butler. Let us drop that part of the discussion. I will even admit that the hint about matter that did not strictly belong is in bad taste when one remembers the eminent scholars to whom I applied it. They are Christian men, firm believers in their theories of religion, and I am not." That makes all the difference in the world, I presume. But, suppose the thing is not quite to my taste, I have never, for a moment, believed that the Chautauqua idea was originated in an attempt to please my taste. Now, will you talk of something else? Will you first promise me something? I could find it in my heart to promise you almost anything. Thank you. It is not a very startling promise that I ask for, nor one that will tax your generosity greatly. I simply want to know if you will not avoid a form of talk such as you have been indulging in with Robert, talk calculated to set him to doubting and speculating instead of resting. Why, I promise, he said, laughing again, though I warn you that I don't believe it will do any good. The boy is of an investigating turn of mind, and he will get at the root of things." He is not the sort of fellow to be put in a corner like a good boy to learn his Bible lesson and recite it to his teacher. He will want to know what it means, and also what it doesn't mean. To refuse to answer the questions that he asks me is not going to keep him from learning the truth sooner or later. By the time this sentence was concluded, Caroline's eyes were flashing. "'I hope with all my soul that he will learn the truth,' she said." It is what I constantly pray for. Mr. Monteith, you mistake. I do not want to keep him in ignorance of anything. If, instead of answering his questions in your way, giving answers which I know you will admit, after thinking about them, are not worthy the name of answers, you will refer him to your father for information. It will be all that I can ask. He winced under that. How could he help it? But Caroline did not care. If he wished to stand well in her eyes, he had lost ground wonderfully during the last few minutes. She liked frankness, she detested sophistry. Now to prove to you, he said with a great show of earnestness, how little I care for this whole thing, I will promise not to speak another word beyond a civil good morning to the boy while we are at Chautauqua. I mean nothing, I assure you. She by no means wished for this, she could readily see that a pointed neglect of Robert at this time might lead to more harm in the end than the present apparently warm friendship existing between them could do. Yet it hurt her to think that he had meant so little by his kindnesses that he could throw the boy off so easily. She would have liked him better if he had at least meant friendship. "'I exact no such promise as that,' she answered coldly, and to his suggestion that they should drop the boy and talk about something else, 
she replied that she thought it quite time to go home. "'Oh, not yet,' he answered eagerly. "'You are always in haste to go home if I chance to be with you. I have had no opportunity to show you the wonders of this place, or to tell you anything, and I had promised myself so much pleasure in doing it.' They had wandered by one of the many crossing avenues back to the hall by this time, and as it was being glorified by the setting sun, they stopped to admire it. "'This hall is of itself an actual inspiration,' the young man said. "'Let us sit down. It would give me much pleasure to tell you about it, about the old hall after which it is modelled, or at least that suggested it. The wonders of the Parthenon, that grand old mass of marble, would have just delighted you. I can imagine how your eyes would glow over even a description of it. May I tell you about it? I fancy I have a passably clear conception of the ancient model, she said, still speaking coldly. At another time it would have given her delight to learn more, to hear him talk, but she could not so soon forget that he had wounded her had shown himself to be selfish and indifferent to the mischief that he did. He was by no means willing to dismiss the Parthenon so soon. He had counted on it, on his description of its ancient glory to light up her face with one of those rare eager smiles. He began to talk in the easy, half-narrative, half-conversational way in which he was so gifted, but at every point Caroline annoyed him by merely assenting to his statements as something that she had known before, and no glow came to her face. "'Yes, I know,' she said simply, when he told her about the statuary that graced the ancient temple, or described the view from the point on which he stood when he last visited the ruins. "'I thought you told me you knew nothing about all these wonderful things,' he said at last, a shade of annoyance plainly visible in his tones. "'People can learn, you know,' she said, speaking lightly. "'I have learned a great deal at Chautauqua.' And then she insisted on going immediately, and by the most direct route, to the cottage. End of chapter 34